This is your wallet. I've got my hands full with your credit cards, ID, and that Froyo loyalty card. So I was thrilled to learn about the new digital wallet in the Giant Eagle app. It'll let you store, manage, and spend all your gift cards right from your phone. E-gift cards you buy from Giant Eagle and GetGo will load automatically. And you can even transfer plastic gift cards there, too. Download the Giant Eagle app and start using the digital wallet today. Visit GiantEagle.com backslash wallet for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Another episode of Dr. Low Radio. I'm Dr. Lauren Noel. I'm your host. Thanks for the listens and the support. I really appreciate it. We have another wonderful show lined up for you tonight. This is a topic that I'm very excited about, and I've read the book from cover to cover in the last day, (laughs) and I absolutely love it. So I'm excited to jump into the meat of the show. If you don't know me, I'm a naturopathic doctor. I practice in Encinitas, California, but I work with patients all over the country as well. Because of the radio show, they hear me from all over the place. So I see patients locally and over Skype and over the phone too. Check me out, facebook.com slash Noel. I'm on Twitter, twitter.com slash Noel, And of course, my website, which needs a little bit of a tune-up. So any of you web people... Give me a call or, you know, email me or something because I need to get some help with my website. That is DrLaurenNoel.com. Um, also, too, if you're listening in, you want to call, uh, call and ask a question during the show, 818-495-6919. That's the number uh, for live callers. But, of course, most of you guys listen from iTunes podcast. So hello to all the podcasters out there. Um, I want to just give you a couple announcements. Just next week's show, really excited. I'm going to have um, an author who I don't know anything about this guy. I don't know anything about the topic, really. I just saw the the, the book on Amazon. It caught my attention, and I said, I want him on the show. (laughs) So it's called What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite. And I just thought it seemed like a really interesting title. I contacted him. He sent me his book. And so I'm just excited just to kind of, you know, take a risk and just try something totally new. Um, So he's a science writer who... Um, reveals a remarkable paradox. It's what your brain wants is frequently not what your brain needs. In fact, much of what makes our brain happy or quote-unquote happy leads to errors, it leads to bias, it leads to distortions, and, and really it makes getting you know, out of our own way really difficult. So in next week's show, you'll gain insight of how you can identify some of your brain shortcomings and how you can turn awareness into action to really meet the goals and what's important to you in your life. And so that's next week's show, just kind of giving you a little um, announcement for that. And then also the following one is going to be all about herbal antibiotics. So um, I'll be talking to uh, Stephen Harold Buner. He's uh, the author of many different books on herbal medicine, but this one is all about natural alternatives for treating drug-resistant bacteria. I think oftentimes we think of, okay, well, if there's strep throat or an ear infection or, you know, bladder infection, we have to use antibiotics. Well, not always the case. And oftentimes, you know, these natural treatments are just as effective, if not more, and don't have some of the, you know, negative side effects that these antibiotics have. So it'll be a really great show. That's in a couple of weeks. Um, Some events coming up, if you're local to San Diego, this Friday I'm going to be giving a lecture at the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine. That's going to be a panel. Uh, There will be a medical doctor, an acupuncturist, and myself, and we'll be talking all about thyroid health as it relates to fertility. So low thyroid function and thyroid dysregulation can definitely affect fertility levels. So we're going to be talking all about that from different perspectives. That'll be this Friday, August 3rd at 630. So if you're local, check it out. You can look um, on the website, pacificcollege.edu, for more information. 
Um, also, I gave a paleo lecture recently at uh, our clinic here. I work at Bloom Natural Health in Encinitas, and it was a really great success. It was a packed house. So we're going to do another paleo event um, on August 15th. So if you're local here, check it out. It's going to be at a local gym called uh, Daily Method, which is like a bar method um, type of uh, gym. It's a wonderful workout, and we're going to be doing um, a workout class at 545 and then followed by a lecture. So uh, we'll, we, it'll also be catered excuse me, by a, a local paleo chef. So he has amazing, delicious food. It's all local ingredients. It, you know, it's fresh, it's organic, and it's wonderful. So if you're local, check it out. Um, we'll be posting more information about that on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Bloom Natural Health. And then, <clears throat> kind of funny, I know that everyone's really into this Fifty Shades of Grey book, so we figured, why don't we do Fifty Shades of Pink and do like a, you know, how to boost your sex drive from a natural perspective. So we're going to do an event here at the clinic on August 30th. That's on a Thursday at 6 o'clock, and it's all about natural and holistic ways to boost sex drive from a physical perspective, but also a lot of times it's a mental and emotional thing. So how can we really kind of tap into that psychology and also just, you know, getting into that mental, emotional health and how it relates to sex drive. So it's a lot more than just, you know, hormones. So we'll be getting all into that. We'll have some food there, some, um, you know, some good shots and some drinks. And so come and check it out. Of course, it's not going to be alcohol. It'll be all, you know, non-alcoholic, good, healthy drinks. But um, so stay tuned on our Facebook page and we'll have more information about that. Just want to kind of throw a little, little uh, announcement out there about that. So tonight's show is all about the power of the feminine. Tonight we have a guest who has written quite a thought-provoking book, and it examines the lack of feminine or yin energy in conventional healing. In her text, she traces the history of yin medicine throughout time. And we've heard of this, you know, yin and yang. We kind of don't know what it means sometimes, but it's really a balance. You know, yin is the feminine and yang is the masculine. And there's a lot more to that, but just kind of, you know, just basics there. But, you know, she shows how women's contributions have been hidden have they been erased or repackaged to appear as if women had no place in the evolution of healing? In her book, she discusses how conventional medicine had its birthplace on the battlefield and how this affects our current healthcare model. Her book helps us rediscover the ancient, effective, and feminine ways of healing. So our guest tonight is Dr. Pamela Skye Jean. She is the author of Healing Matters celebrating women's innate healing nature, and she was uh, one of my professors in naturopathic school. I took this class that I was obsessed with. It was called Nature Cure, and it uh, the, the attendance for the, for the class was not really a highly attended class when I first joined it, and I was just so crazy about it. I spread the word, and I think just other students got really excited about it, and just really looking at the importance of having natural treatments and really you know using herbal treatments and hydrotherapy and all, a lot of these powerful home remedies that we can do. And oftentimes the most what we see as simple things can be the most powerful for patients. So I absolutely loved this, this class. It was really fun. And since then, it's done very well. They've had to add on extra um, sections of the course. So, um, yeah, so it's just pretty exciting stuff. Dr. Jean, a little bit about her. She was born in New York City. She trained at the busiest city hospital in the country, Bellevue NYU Medical Center in New York City. Her experience spans almost 50 years, working more than half that first career in the conventional healthcare system as an RN delivering direct nursing care. In 1990, she graduated from NCNM, that's a naturopathic school in Portland, same the one that I went to, with honors in clinical medicine. Her clinical practice focuses on women's health and nutrition, water therapies, and whole body healing, and she also teaches at a couple other local colleges, too. Pamela's practice of natural medicine embraces the aspect of true prevention by teaching and practicing fundamentals of optimal health. Uh, currently, she holds monthly conference seminars promoting personal wellness. 
She also specializes in helping all women achieve their greatest health potential with lifestyle, nutrition, and hormone balancing, and she's fondly known as the hormone goddess. She enjoys yoga, gardening, and hiking. She lives in, in Portland with her partner, Sarah, and she has her beloved cats and dogs, and she's just a fabulous, wonderful woman. So, Dr. Jean, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Noel. Good to be here. And a great introduction. Yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. I tried. I just kind of fumbled through it. I've been I've been working since like eight this morning, so sometimes I'm kind of running on empty. But you know, I pull it together because I, I love doing this. I love, I just I love being yeah. able to interview someone who was my professor, and I love this book you wrote. I actually, um, I I misplaced the book to be honest with you. I misplaced the book and I found it like two days ago. Oh yay! Oh, yay. <laughs> and so I, <laughs> so I um I. I had a seminar last night until 10 o'clock. It was a really late seminar, and then I was like, i got to jump into this book. So I sat in my car after the seminar and read for two hours in my car (laughs) and then went home and read some more, and then I got up this morning before work and read some more, and then I read throughout my whole lunch. So I – but it was not hard to read because it's such a good book. It's really – I mean, I was just like – I highlighted the whole thing. So I love this book, so thank you for writing it. Um, but first, let's kind of backtrack. Tell us a little about a little bit about you and your journey in becoming Dr. Jean. Well, my journey came through the first career uh, as a registered nurse, and you know, I love nursing. Nursing is a wonderful profession. But after so many years, and I did a lot of critical care nursing, but I did you know many other things as well, um, public health, and I did hospice nursing, and even did IV therapy nursing. But something was still missing, and I didn't quite know what it was. And I started investigating for myself personally, you know, health, being healthier. I was in my 30s, and I just knew there had to be something else. And I started experimenting with nutrition. And, you know, allopathic care does not include nutrition as any significant um, healing modality at all. We're doing more of that now, but certainly not when I was in my nursing career. And I just said there is more to this than just, you know, drugs and surgery and you have to live with your disease the rest of your life uh, mantra. And so when I started experiencing wonderful results of eating better, um, I just said, i got to learn more about this. And that's what got me interested and uh, I saw changes in my own body. And I was healthy. I didn't have any illnesses. I had a few minor things. But, you know, I saw my health improve with, you know, getting off of um, high meat and dairy and sugar. And so I just wanted to learn how to work with that. So I actually, you know, sold everything I owned. I was living in Florida at the time, and I just said, I'm going to do this. I applied to, you know, NCNM in Portland, and um, I drove cross-country and just, you know, made this my life's work, and I never regretted a moment of it. Uh, I'm really happy to be working in a profession that, um looks at people in a complete package, not just in pieces. And that's what I was seeing, and it didn't make sense to me. I didn't really identify it then as, as clearly as I have now, but that's what I saw. We saw, you know, a, a foot injury, and they, they, they teach them to treat the foot, and they forget about the rest of the person, or heart thing, and forget about the um, mind-body uh, connection. And I wanted something more. So that's what brought me to NCNM and uh, it was a great training, and um, I feel really uh, honored to be able to work with people in the way that I do today uh, because it's very kind, and um, it gets great results, and that's why I 
I love it. Yeah. And do you feel like your background in being a nurse in such a rigorous environment helped you in becoming a better naturopathic doctor? Oh, absolutely. And I really had an advantage over my classmates, and they would tell me that, you know, you're so lucky of all this experience. Because, I, yeah, I, I knew the human body in many ways and had treated, you know, the uh, sickest of the sick and the poorest of the poor um, in all kinds of situations. And so nothing, you know, daunted me. And so actually moving to naturopathic medicine was a breath of fresh air, if you will, because I was working with people who had more interest in being more healthy. And um, I know that the nursing skills was great um, background. I did some IV, I did a lot of IV therapy in my nursing uh, career, and of course I carried it over into my naturopathic career um, initially. I don't do IV therapy anymore in my practice, but I certainly did for a while. And it has some great uh, advantages to do IV therapy. And I know that you do that in your practice uh, currently. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I have all these skills that um, that I had learned from being seeing so many people. I mean, when you're in the emergency room, you know, ICU and uh, doing public health, and I saw tons of patients. And so I saw all kinds of things. And so my comfort level was there. So when I saw something that was really, someone was really sick, I knew what I had to do. And there was no doubt, you know, how I could enter the some intervention. I also gained um, some comfort in being able to use some of the natural therapies because in my earlier nurses' training, this was in the 60s, we actually did things that were a little kinder. We did uh, patient care, uh, some water therapies, like they did high hot colonics was a common treatment for certain illnesses in allopathic medicine. Um, TB patients were... Uh, put out in the sunshine to help with their disease. So these are some of the early nature cure treatments that were still being used in allopathic care in my early nursing career. They eventually did go away, but when I reflect back, it's like, oh, they really did believe in this stuff at some at some point in time. And then when the drug therapy became, you know, much more popular, um, the other kinds of treatments kind of fell away. Mm-hmm. So I I felt I was a really great advantage in my career. I remember uh, working in a nursing care, nursing home facility. Just this last year, I was working with the medical doctor and doing some rounds with him. And um, it was inpatient, you know, nursing care where the patients would just basically be in their room, in their bed most of the Mm -hmm. time. And they they would never even see the sun at all. They just wouldn't go outside at all. And it was just, it it baffled me. It was amazing. So he had me come on board as his, you know, naturopathic assistant and really providing a lot of that the natural treatments. And he, I mean, this guy's a medical doctor and he absolutely loves natural medicine. And so I would give my, you know, my um, recommendations. And so we would just require that they would go outside for at least an hour every single mm-hmm. day. And the patients just get Wonderful. better. It's from sunshine. It's yeah. the craziest thing. It's yeah. only sun. You I know. know. <laughs> I know. I know. Some of those, like you had mentioned earlier in the introduction, some of the simplest things can be profound. And I have seen mm-hmm. that happen. Mm-hmm. So, uh, getting back to our roots. Yeah. So, you know, this this book, it's it's so refreshing, you know, because it's like it's it's just it kind of gives this perspective that I I never really even thought of it before. I mean, I always kind of thought of conventional medicine as as more on the aggressive side, but never really thought of it in terms of a yin and a yang balance. Can you kind of give us mm-hmm. a little bit of perspective? Like, what do you mean by that exactly? <clears throat> yeah. Well. 
the yin and the yang are the opposites of everything. And we can take almost anything and see how things are opposite. Like the sky, you have the earth, and you have um, light, and you have dark, and you have so getting into more than the additional part. You have the rational and the irrational, or the intellect and the intuition. So when you're treating someone in the allopathic world or is very young because they're very intellectual about things, very scientific. Whereas the yin side is less scientific, a little more irrational, a little more mysterious, and a little more, a lot more intuitive. And that's the yin side. I would say it's like the softer side of everything. And I see um, things like nutrition, you know, nourishment as very yin, as opposed to um, you know giving a pharmaceutical, which I would see that as very young because it's very fast-acting and it, it cuts the symptoms down. Whereas the yin is more about reaching in more deeply to the healing aspects of the body, of the human body. Um, so you can look at hot and cold. You know, yang is considered hot and yin is considered cold or cool. And, um, you know, right and wrong, you can put those in those compartments. Right is very yang and wrong is very yin. So we, can't, we really have to have both because they both have a place because nothing is ever all right or never all wrong or nothing is um, all intellectual, so it is intuitive. So in practice, when we're helping people find their wellness, I, I think of it as a balance. So you have to have maybe some yin, but you have to have some, I'm sorry, you have to have some yang, but you have to have yin. For medical practice, um, the way we see it today in the conventional system, the medical system, or the allopathic system, they learned their medicine primarily from military warfare. That's where many of the doctors learned, you know, their surgical skills, life-saving skills. And so many of the allopathic schools today are really based on kind of that model that you have to save lives at all costs. Um, the... Um, have to be very decisive. We can't wait um, and wait to see what might happen. Well, some doctors practice this. I'm not putting all doctors in this category, but in essence, this is the way allopathy likes to operate in a system of hierarchy, a system of protocol or what we call algorithms. Algorithms are protocols, time-tested, you know, like a great algorithm is someone who comes in and has is um, doing CPR on them, and they have a definite algorithm of what you do to save the life doing a CPR, giving certain drugs in a certain order in a certain time. So that's the very young aspect of um, allopathic medicine is this paradigm of um, don't let them die. You know, just like on the battlefield, don't let them die. We have to do everything we have possibly can do. Well, in the yin, in the yang of things, death is inevitable. We are all going to die, and then sometimes it's okay to let them die. Now, every circumstance, of course, is different, but, you know, and I wrote a couple of stories in the book. Now, sometimes it's okay just to say it's time to let them go, and I would see them doing these, these protocols on these very ill patients that it was really their time, and mm-hmm. we got to let them go, and that's very yin. And I write the story of my friend uh, Nancy, who made a very conscious decision that, you know, she did her, her uh, mastectomy for the breast cancer. Then she didn't want chemo and radiation, and she knew 
her chances of dying were increased. And two years after her original diagnosis, she was started. She was at her dying process. And she went with it. She just went along with it. She didn't, she, I wouldn't say she welcomed it. Well, maybe she did welcome it. She just knew it was going to happen, so she brought people together to help her in that process. And I think that's, again, really speaking, that we have to honor that death is sometimes what we have to also deal with. But allopathic medicine, we don't want to deal with death. It's really about denial. And I saw that so much in my career in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We just pretended that people really didn't die. Um, we had to do, kept them alive, even when they really weren't there anymore. And we all have heard the stories of some really outstanding cases where people were kept alive for years. For, for what? I really don't know. And so this is the paradigm that I really wrote about, that allopathic care is very good sometimes. I wouldn't want to, I would want to use it if I was hit by a bus. But sometimes we have to allow the other modalities to take over. We sometimes have to let a disease have its course and support the body in its process, whatever that might be. And it might be that it's dying. And so we just be supportive in that dying process. And right. I also have that's really a fear-based mentality, right? <clears throat> Absolutely. Because it's based in that military um, hierarchy and there's this whole pecking order of people and that if you don't do the medicine the way they think you should do it, then you're going to get, you're going to get called out on it and sometimes pretty bad consequences. So everyone's in fear that they're going to make a bad decision or, you know, the patient's going to die and they're going to get blamed for it. And so when you set that kind of system up, everyone's walking around in fear. Um, right. When I look back on the hospitals that I've worked in, you know, it's like walking on a tightrope at 100 feet in yeah. the air. You know, you just don't know what's going to happen next. And it's the fear is there. It's like something bad's going to happen. You've got to be at the ready and stop it, whatever you have to do. Yeah. And it's yeah, not it, I was going to say, it just it makes me think of um, a, a friend of mine who's a medical doctor, and he came to visit me in the clinic. And <clears throat> when he stopped by, I said, let me, let me give you an IV treatment. I give him just a vitamin and mineral IV and give him some glutathione. And he was feeling run down. He's feeling a lot better after he left. But he was just, his eyes were wide watching all the things I was doing. He was so amazed, just wishing he could do this with his patients. You know, he's stuck in this conventional medical system, and he's in love with this kind of medicine, but he's just stuck in this machine, and he can't, you know, he can't do anything else because he would get sued if he went outside the standard of care, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, he's stuck exactly. in this whole military, like, you have to do this, you have to do that. And even right. just meeting different medical students over the years, going to different conferences and stuff, you know, we would go to these ACAM conferences and sit in the same classes, and there'd be, like, an MD student next to me, and and I would just tell her, you know, the different things I'm learning and things I'm doing with my patients, and they're like, I wish I could do that, you know. Like, mm-hmm. they have to use fluoride um, tablets with mm-hmm. kids, and there's even if they strongly believe in not using fluoride, they just can't. They have to. And it's like it just blocks this whole yin energy of wanting to nurture and care for their patients and really do what they believe is right. So, yeah, it's tough. And, and, and the yin medicine goes as far as, like, you know, even just holding a patient's hand and listening to them. That's, that's medicine. And it's like if you can't code that, you can't do it. Right. So it got into this regimentation of coding and diagnostic yeah. coding and CPT coding that they, they mm-hmm. can't do it. I mean, I feel sorry for them, too, because I think they, yeah. like you just said, they want to do it, too. 
think sometimes we we can be really rough on the doctors and just say, well, all doctors are like this, this, and that. And and I didn't I didn't get that vibe from your book at all. But I just you know I hear that from uh, from a lot of the patients actually come in here. Sometimes they just act like the medical doctors are just so, but they're really they're just stuck in this system too. So that's that's why I like your book is you you do give some good solutions for that. So, but you know over time, yin has been embraced in medicine. You know, the women have been regarded as healers, and oftentimes, you know, some of the leaders of the tribes, and and um, so you know, can you talk a little bit about a little bit like that the historic perspective and how it has been, and you know how it's kind of shifted into the way it is now. Well, before medicine was organized the way it is today, I mean, women were the, the village healer, you know, the, the wise woman, you know, the the witches. I mean, they called them witches, but that really meant wise women. You know, they knew the herbs and they made potions and they did spells and incantations and prayers uh, for for getting well. And, and we know today even indigenous tribes will use, you know, shamans, and it's basically there's calling the spirits. So... Um, so women use some of those methods, and uh, you know, if you go back in very early history um, to Egypt, you know, you had the Egyptian priestesses, which were they were healers at the time. Uh, there's a story in there about a woman in Greece. Uh, her name was Agnodice, and she uh, so much wanted to help women because there were only male doctors, and most women didn't want to go to a male doctor, particularly for any GYN issues, so she disguised herself as a man and did manage to go through medical school. Got out of medical school, set up practice, and had a great practice because the woman who came to see her knew that she was a woman and was thriving, and then when the men, male practitioners in the area found out that, you know, because they were jealous of her before practice, it was one of the problems, um, they, they, they called her out on it. They, you know, they said, she's a man, uh, this doctor is a woman and she should be practicing medicine. It was like against the law at the time. So they threw her in jail. And so the women, who all of her uh, followers, you know, patients, some of whom were the, uh, wives and daughters of the judges who were going to kill her for this, uh, practicing this medicine, they all threatened as a group to commit suicide together if they didn't release this woman. Isn't that a fantastic story? That's so they did. It, she she did. She was recognized. And they did allow her. They released her, and they allowed her to practice. Of course, she could only treat women, which was fine. That's all she really wanted to do anyway. But, you know, mm-hmm. there are these stories of women who had incredible bravery, in my, in my opinion. I mean, what courage it took to, to do those things. And, you know, you just look throughout time, there were these really fantastic women who were outstanding, as well as women who were not outstanding, but they were just doing the everyday work. And, of course, the most uh, common practitioner was the midwife. She was delivering all of the children, and it was only women's work. I mean, men didn't have anything to do with childbirth. Uh, that only started um, Louis the Fourteenth. He was the one who started it. Apparently, um, his mistress was having a baby, so he wanted to witness the, the birth of this child. So he uh, made the doctor have the woman lie down, and he hid behind a curtain so he could view the birthing process. Well, this opened up a whole can of worms, so to speak, because he could get to see the birth of the baby, the doctor could see the birth of the baby, but before this time, women were doing it in a natural squatting position, giving birth and letting gravity work. So this one incident changed the way birthing practice was held from that moment forward. 
That was about over 300 years ago because the doctors now could intervene, could actually see what was going on and intervene. Of course, putting a woman on her back delivering a baby actually slowed down the birthing process and caused more complications. But that's a whole other story. But women were the total practitioner, you know, in the in the community. And um, so she would be, um, help with the delivery of the, of the children and then would take care of the children as well, help with the mothers and their care, with their GYN problems and the children. So women have been practitioners um, throughout all of court history. The only problem is that it hasn't been recorded. And the reason it hasn't been recorded is that women were not allowed to be educated, if you look at history. And certainly women were barred from medical schools. And it wasn't until the late 1800s um, when Elizabeth Blackwell in this country, and I don't know the first woman in Europe who was able to get into medical school, but, you know, even in England, uh, the women were barred from medical school, that things started to change. And that was a tough road. But these women um, persevered, got through medical school with a lot of adversity, uh, but then were able to set up clinics for women and children, uh, particularly the poor women and children. They were the ones who were most neglected because the male doctors really went after the affluent society because that's where they got paid well. So these women doctors, the early uh, pioneers, um, really helped some of the poor women in the community um, to have some kind of health care. And then there's women who, like there was a, um, a woman named um, Rosa Minoka, who was a, um, a Native American woman in Wisconsin. She got trained as a medical doctor. I think she went to the women's school in Pennsylvania, went back to Wisconsin, and she was part of the United Tribe in Wisconsin. And she practiced her medicine out of her kitchen in her home. And she had a tremendous practice and helped many people uh, through nutritional and other means to, to be well. So there's so many stories that have been untold that what women have done to make a difference. And, I, and I'd like to just um, tell one other story of a woman who most people have probably never heard of, because I didn't hear of her either until I started doing my research. Her name was uh, Elizabeth Hamilton. She was a medical doctor in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And she worked um, with the workers in the Chicago, Illinois area. Many of them were the, um, the miners and the um, industrial workers and were becoming sick and dying from the very toxic uh, industry that they worked in, heavy metals and you know, coals and other things like that that caused early, early deaths. So she studied this and started to publish her work. And because of her work, she became acquainted by the government to um, start to, uh, actually she printed some literature um, about the toxic trades and she wrote in, uh, booklets about that. Uh, but her other claim to fame is that because of her findings and the dangerous uh, chemicals and uh, things that these men, mostly men, were working with, um, she was able to get workers' compensation for get started in that state, the state of Illinois. You know, that's phenomenal when you think about it. She changed, you know, the way workers were treated and uh, got health benefits for people who worked in dangerous situations. And, of course, safety standards eventually came out of all of this. So these are things that we don't often know or recognize the value that women have made. Um, mm -hmm. in helping the health of masses of people, you know, uh, many, many, many people. And, 
and even in naturopathic that. school, you know, we don't we don't even learn about the women in naturopathic school really. I mean, even I the wife of Benedict Lust, you know, right. can you tell a little bit about her? Because I I think her story yeah. is really fascinating. It's a great story. Yeah, her name is Louisa Louisa Lust, and um, she had a great sanitarium in Butler, New Jersey, and um, very successful um, with her hydrotherapy and her nutrition programs, and wrote cookbooks and gave cooking classes. And people would travel from New York and to Butler, which is you know, quite a journey in those days when you were going by horse uh, and carriage. Uh, and then she and Benedict met. I don't really know how they met, but they met and, you know, he came to his, her sanitarium and was very impressed by it. And, of course, Benedict was in New York, you know, trying to get school started. And, and Benedict was often in jail because of his, his work. And the medical doctors didn't like him, so they were throwing him in jail, telling him that he was crazy. And so um, <laughs> he and Louisa finally got together and got married. And, and it was Louisa's money that she earned from this money of the sanitarium that supported Benedict and all his work and helping get his school started, getting him out of jail, and, you know, all kinds of things. So <laughs> we don't hear about what she did. We only hear about Benedict. But, you know, Benedict wouldn't have gotten as far as he did without the help of Louisa. And not only her money, but, you know, the fact that she had a great sanitarium and she probably helped treat him, you know, there. So um, (laughs) the unsung heroines, you know, of medicine are like Louisa and, uh, you know, women like um, uh, Louisa Dobbs, um, uh, Dobbs, another one, who did great fasting. She believed in what they called hygiotherapy, which was basic good hygiene. But she did a lot of fasting with her patients. She was an MD, however. But she really practiced like a naturopath. Um, <laughs> so there's some really great practitioners, um, and then the water cure movement that was was really popular in the mid to late 1800s was really um, promoted by the women because women loved the water therapies. You know, the sitz bath and the tub bath really helped women with you know GYN issues. A lot of women had pelvic inflammatory diseases you know, probably gonorrhea and some other associated, you know, uh, sexually transmitted um, diseases that were greatly helped with hydrotherapy. So they'd go to these sanitariums and do the cyst baths and eat good food and get, you know, nourished and healed. And women liked it for another reason, that they could do these wonderful treatments for their children. Because remember, during that time, they were using pretty harsh chemicals like calomel, which is a mercury-based um, product that they gave patients to make them sick and make them throw up and cathartics and that, that's how they treat people back then. So hydrotherapy was like, woohoo, you know, great to do better. How did they ever get that idea? How was that ever how was that ever an idea that came around that let me give you mercury and make you throw up? I mean Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As a cathartic, you know, just make them sick enough that they throw up and, you know, purge them so that their bowels are cleaned out and you know, it probably helps sometimes, you know. And then where, where did bloodletting come from? You know, bloodletting was yeah. like probably people who had congestive heart failure. Yeah, if you bloodlet them, they're going to get better. So then they it probably just kind of went over into lots of other things. And well, it's good for congestive heart failure. It's probably good for this too. So they were bloodletting everybody, you know. And, you know, George Washington died because he, they took too much blood out of him. Did you know that? I did not know that, no. Yes. Yeah, that's why he died. Let <laughs> let him too much. <laughs> Didn't one of the presidents die of syphilis? I think I remember hearing that. Was that? Yeah, I don't maybe know which was one that, it was. I think that maybe was Jefferson. I feel like he 
died of syphilis. Oh. I don't remember if it was the president or not, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's so nuts. the stories are very interesting, and if you read um, medical history, which is what I've been doing these last few years, and just loving it and understanding about how we do what we do today is based on how where we came from and the, the structure that we're, we're still operating under. And that's why this, when I wrote this book, I wanted uh, people to understand we have to get out from under this structure. This is not working. It, it maybe works in some situations. Like I said, in a, an emergency protocol, it has a place, but mm-hmm. not for everything. We have to change our ways of looking at people and their illness and how to help yeah. people get well. Now so you've been in this equipment. for a long time. You've been in the in healthcare for fifty years. So years. and you mentioned years. in the beginning it was very different in the beginning, right? You saw still some of these natural treatments mm-hmm. and more of the yin in it the is. medicine and then you've seen it really shift. So so what changes have you seen in your fifty years in healthcare? Oh my gosh. Well, I think the the area that I uh, that's most disturbing to me um as a practitioner and looking at the overall healthcare for um, Americans is the way medicine has become for profit. I worked for a number of years in all nonprofit hospitals. That's all there were, nonprofit. So anyone got care who needed care. Now, I knew there were some problems with, you know, these institutions not meeting their budgets, but uh, becoming for profit is problematic for me because, you know, it doesn't mean you shouldn't earn um, a decent living for what you do. But when you have to pay shareholders, that's when it gets to be a problem. When the bottom line becomes the most important thing, you can't deliver good health care. You are looking at the bottom line too much. And that's what I saw happen in the 1980s. And I was still a nurse in the 1980s, and I saw personally the experience of working in a non not for profit hospital and then working in a for profit hospital. And I was just stunned to saw the difference because it didn't matter when I went on a nursing unit, um, the, the care that these patients got, it just mattered that you had 10 patients to take care of and didn't matter if they were acutely ill or just an ambulatory patient going home tomorrow. So the difference was that the bottom line, we, we're going to pay you only for this number of patients you take care of, and that's never the way it was before that. You've got, you've got to take care of patients based on the acuity level of their, of their needs so they could get the better care. The patients go to hospitals now and they know they're not going to get the care they really need because of that bottom line. And that's what's really been the most disturbing to me about the changes that I've seen. And then the other stuff that I've seen is that, you know, physicians and, and medical doctors, for the most part, you know, rely on too many diagnostics now and they don't put their hands on patients. They don't touch their patients. They don't palpate them. Um, they don't, you know, examine them in the ways that they used to. You know, and I went to my medical doctor um, for just a routine check, and she talked to me with her back, to, you know, to me. She, she's sitting at the computer. So now we have doctors who are, you know, computerized in all their notes, and they talk to the patients, you know, while, while they're typing in the computer. I don't know. I just I don't have trouble with that. I think that's not really good health care. Um, and that precision, you know, we have precision today that is held in, su- in such high esteem. You know, and of course we have to be clear and precise about certain things that we do, like doses on medicines have to be precise. You know, laser surgeries have to be precise. But I think it, we 
have to also remember that there's a whole person there, and I think that's what's gotten lost, is that whole person, that whole healing paradigm. And I just mm-hmm. want to also mention that the word heal actually comes from a, a root word called hal, H-A-L, and that actually means whole. So healing is about wholeness. So you can I don't believe you can have healing without looking at the whole picture. So in allopathic medicine, there isn't that component. It's just, let's fix this particular thing you've come in for, and I'll see you next time, which is very different the way, you know, in naturopathic medicine is, is focused. So that's, that's the real big changes I've seen, you know, in the years that I've been in medicine is that they've just lost their, their wholeness and the way they used to work with patients. But they used to see doctors really put their hands on patients and examine them and really look at them and really listen to them. And they don't do that as much anymore. Because they're trained to see two patients in seven minutes. Right. Yeah, or seven That's minutes. It. What can you do in seven minutes? Isn't that the average doctor visit? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and they're trained to do that. I mean they because they have they have a business model to follow. Right. So you have a business model yeah. to follow. That's what you have to do. Now, in your so book, you draw um, you draw a, a, an interesting um, differentiation between cure and um, mm-hmm. what was it? Cure and heal, right? Or yes. yeah. So, what's the difference yes. between those two? Because I think they're they're a little bit confused. Yeah. Well, curing is like having your appendix out. You know, so you're cured, or your your cancer you're cured. I cure. I cut it out, and you're cured. And that's very different than healing, which is your body is now back in balance. Your your whole body is back in balance. So you can cut out a tumor in your leg and say that you're cured. But are you healed? Is your body going to make more cancer cells because your immune system is weak? Um, that's, the, that's the healing aspect. So are you receiving a good nutrition um, are you enhancing your immune function so that you, your body can do the healing? Because that's where the healing comes from is your body. The doctor doesn't heal you. Your, your body heals yourself. You heal yourself. So that's the major difference in curing. It's kind of curing is like fixing. So you can fix right. something, but it's not really healed, you know. Which is a very so, young way of looking at it, right? It's that I'm, it's like you correct. are a set of, um, like you're like a to-do list coming through my door and I'm going to fix yeah. you. Yep, that's exactly right. <laughs> exactly. And I, I yeah. think it's important and a lot of times that we see those differences. Yeah, exactly. And patients come to see a naturopathic doctor because oftentimes they've been through that whole medical system and they're like, I'm tired of just being a set of symptoms. I'm tired of being labs, walking laboratory results. Right. You know, it's more than just um, than my diagnosis. So, um, so for those who are listening, who just tuned in, we're talking to Dr. Pamela Jean. She's the author of Healing Matters. We're getting into the good meat of the book and of the show. Um, so, Dr. Jean, you write stories called 21st Century Tales in your book, um, where you just give some really nice um, just anecdotes, you know, things that people have written personally that they've gone through. Do you have a favorite one, and how did this idea of tales come about in your book? Well, the idea of tales came out of the old wise tales, and they were often disregarded and all of an old wise tale. You know, as if it didn't mean anything. I remember hearing that myself, um, as a nurse. Um and, you know, in my earlier career, you know, that old wise tale, like the herb herbal tales. Oh, it's an old wise tale. That 
really accentuate that, you know, and, and say that some of these are really valuable. These tales are valuable. So I put it into the perspective of the 21st century tale of what are some women doing now in, in their medicine and in their way of looking at medicine um, that um, is a tale to really notice. So I chose some really great stories from different people that I met. And um, one of my favorite ones is the one I, I spoke about earlier was about my friend Nancy, you know, who died of breast cancer. And, and I just will say just a few more things about that is that her dying process was so beautiful. And I was a very much a part of it, as was some other women in our, we had a spiritual circle at the time, that we all learned so much from her. She was such a teacher, and she was so intentional, and she knew she was dying, and she just walked through it. And it was really lovely um, to be a part of that. And, of course, it was sad, but it was really a way to learn about death without being in fear. And that's important that we, as, as uh, practitioners, to not be in fear about death, but to be with mm-hmm. it and to, to know that it's part of life. That's the yin part of life. Okay? So yin yeah. is death and yang is life. And we have both. We don't separate them. Mm-hmm. But the other uh, favorite uh, uh, 21st century tale comes from a story of um, Kristen. Uh, Kristen uh, was a woman in her um, late 30s. I think she was 37 or 38. She was pregnant for the first time. Uh, absolutely ecstatic about the pregnancy. Her and her husband were uh, really anticipating this baby. And she went for her first ultrasound. And the ultrasound showed a, prob- a problem. And they told Kristen, well, we think you should just abort this pregnancy and just start all over again. And she was just devastated. First of all, the pregnancy, she was quite sick. She had a lot of uh, nausea and vomiting. And so she, she's not really she's going through it again. She was out now entering into her second trimester, and she did not want to start all over dead. She was mm-hmm. at 12 or 14 weeks. And um, so she went for a second ultrasound, and they confirmed that this is a nuchal um, deformity. And so she just had a sense that, she wanted to learn more about this rather than just going off and having an abortion and starting over again. So she started doing her own research on this supposed um, abnormality fetus. And she came to find out with her research that sometimes these findings on ultrasound are not necessarily accurate. This just blows my mind when I think about it. <laughs> now, this woman has no medical background. She's just a, a smart woman. And she starts, you know, doing her own thinking and deciding, well, wait a minute now, she says. She goes back to the doctor, and, of course, they're not happy with her because they're not following their orders or their ideas. So she finds herself a new doctor, and she comes in armed with all the information that she found about this supposed abnormality that a certain percentage of births come out perfectly fine. And she was sick of her guns, and she was not convinced. So she went for further testing, I think that was genetic testing, to, to be sure. And the genetic testing came out fine. So she was right. And she, well, I'm not going to tell the ending. You have to write it, read the book, what happened. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I was so encouraged and taken by this woman's story that I had to write about it because, you know, she, you know, just trusted herself. Just like, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure I want to do this. 
And she was right on. She didn't want to do it, and it was, it was right for her to not do it. Mm-hmm. So these are the kinds well, of things that we need to pay attention to, that women have an intuitive sense and right. a knowing that you cannot nail down and you can't always prove it, but it actually is good. And, mm-hmm. you know, this story is a really good example of that. Yep. So that's, yep. that's really a strong favorite story of mine is that one. And um, mm-hmm. I just really um, admire her. And I want other women to know from reading that story that they probably have some pretty good ideas as well that they can trust. And this is all about helping women, whether you're a medical practitioner or are just a woman in the world, you know, that you know some things. Women know things that you can't quite identify how you know it or why you know it, but you know it, but you can trust it. Absolutely. So that's side. Yeah, you know that as well, don't you? When you're I working do. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. There's times where I'm like, yeah, I just when I go with my gut feeling about patients, I, very rarely do I does it go wrong, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Even when the labs right. might say otherwise, if I have an intuition right. about something and I and I really go with it, usually pretty right yeah. on. It's, it's a trip. Yeah. 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 So that's that's what I want to help help us as women um, in medicine and women in general to know that we have this inner sense and that it's valuable. Because mm-hmm. it's been devalued, it's been so devalued in the medical hierarchy, and it's been dissed basically, as this. Oh, that's just that's not proven. Yeah. You know, so I really want us to know that we don't have to prove everything to make it okay. Right. Absolutely. Well, yeah. the the good news is is that. Now women can be doctors. I mean, I looked at some of the statistics mm-hmm. that you had in your book that it was in 1894, mm-hmm. only 4% to 5% of physicians were women. Right. And today, right. female medical students are on par in number with males. And there was an article in the New York Times that was published that um, Pauline Chen, MD, she wrote that even male patients prefer female doctors who pay more yep. attention and take more time to listen. So that's very uh, encouraging news mm-hmm. that that patients prefer female doctors oftentimes, and there's so many female doctors now. So I think the numbers are there, but but we have a voice that we don't really, really, you know, give that freedom to let out. And so, you know, what are your thoughts about this and how, yeah, there's there's a lot of us, but how can we really create that shift and give that balance to this young, dominated, you know, medical system? Well, that is the main reason I wrote this book, so that we can start that shift and we can start realizing that what we know has that value. Um, and it's in, until we elevate ourselves, we can't wait for someone else to elevate us. We have to elevate ourselves in the way we think and the way we do things. So, you know, at the end of the book, I write about how to do that, both from the practitioner point of view and from the patient point of view. And it's basically empower yourself, you know, as a patient to ask for what you want. And I think that we are moving in that direction because I think, you know, the your generation, um, Lauren, is certainly better than my generation, you know, that wants to still listen to the doctor as if the doctor knows everything. But I think more people now are not willing to just take one answer. They're willing to do their own research, like Kristen did, um, and to ask for what they really want. And that's what's going to make a difference, uh, tr- uh, truly. And then I want to um, bring attention for your audience of a wonderful um, movement that's happening. It's called the Society for Society for Participatory Medicine. 
Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. You need to look at this. Um, it is a um, not a, a 501c3 charitable organization whose um, premise is really helping people, um, doctors and patients, be their own center of their of what they need. Uh, they're trying to. What their goal is to make um, medicine transparent, mm-hmm. so that the doctor is not the one who has all the answers, which has really been a big mistake. And that doctors say, "I've got all the answers. You just listen to me." Well, that's not true. You don't have all the answers. No one person can have all the answers anyway. I don't care if you're male or female. So the Society for Participatory Medicine, and by the way, the, the website is participatorymedicine.org. Um, and you can become a member and learn more about what they're doing. But it was started by medical doctors, surprisingly. Um, but it's all about putting the patient and the family in the in the circle. And I like to think about it that way. I think healthcare should be about putting ourselves in a circle and surrounding ourselves with the kinds of people we want to help us. So that could be, you know, a naturopath, a medical doctor, an acupuncturist, a spiritual healer an energy healer, a body worker, you know, whatever you want, you feel you need. I think it's up to you as the person with the problem, the illness, whatever, or someone who wants to promote their health, to select the kinds of healers you want in your circle. And then you tap into them when you need them. And the ideal, of course, would be that they all talk to each other. <laughs> would that mm-hmm. would be novel? But that would really be the way, the, 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 the most ideal. But we have to get out of this hierarchy medicine and get into more of this, um, you know, more eclectic and um, inclusive uh, medicine. And that if you're the patient, you get to decide. And even more radical than that is that I really think that patients should carry their own medical records. That no one, no doctor should own own your medical records. They're yours. It's mm-hmm. your history. It's, it's your treatment. You should own them, and you should bring them to your visits. Yeah. Every so, single lab yeah. I run on a patient, patients get a copy of, of all of it. And, and oh, I don't think patients even know that they can have that. I don't think they even know that they have a yeah. right to do that. Right. Uh, that's because they've been given a hard time about it. You know, and they go to the doctor's office, and they make it so difficult for them to get it, so people just give up. Yeah, that's still within the practice. But I'm with you. Every patient I see gets a copy of their medical, um, their laboratory test. Because they will, when they're informed, don't you find this true? When they're informed, they're more likely to follow your suggestions. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, yeah. they understand mm-hmm. what's going on. Uh, and then, well, okay, what Dr. Noel says, I, I guess I should do that because that's not just going to fix this problem here. So, you know, I, that definitely has to be that way. So this is a yeah. shift that I'm proposing that we have to start seeing and looking at. And and as and as we start demanding, it's like, you know, the consumer demands what they want, this is when the change happens. It's not going to come mm-hmm. from the medical associations <laughs> because they they've got too much at stake, you know. It has to come from the grassroots movement. So we have to as as practitioner and women practitioners empower our patients to really ask for what they want. And when I see mm-hmm. patients, you know, I'm always encouraging them to go and see someone for body work or someone for um, reflexology or, um, you know, I always I always tap into Louise Hay and see what she mm-hmm. has to say about whatever the problem is going on. So what is the metaphysical aspect of what you're dealing with saying to you 
What's the message? So I incorporate all of that when I'm working with someone. And mm-hmm. I work with I love Louise Hay. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just recently was working with a gerontologist on a patient, hmm. co-treating this patient. And um, she was actually surprised to learn, you know, what I know. And so I think medical doctors have some preconceived ideas um, of other practitioners, and um, and that's unfortunate. But I think the newer, younger medical doctors are having a much better orientation to some of the alternative practices. Did you find that to be true? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, people are a lot more yeah. excited about kind of integrating the two, especially because mm-hmm. their patients are asking about it all the time. So they have they're kind of forced right. to learn about it. But but yeah, I think people are a lot more open minded about it now. Yeah. Yeah. So well, yeah, do you think I, do you think that intuition and science can really coexist? You know, the yin, the yin yes. and the yang. Do you think that that yes, is, is doable? Absolutely. absolutely, it's needed. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's needed. It's not one or the other. And that's a perfect example of yin and yang, right there, mm-hmm. intuition and science. I think science is valuable. I have a great respect for science. But I also have um, a little um, disdain for science, if you will, because of some science is not perfect, yet it's, it's, it's put up there as if it were perfect. And that's what, that's what burns my tail, is that people think science is the be-all, end-all, when we know it's not, although it's a yeah. of us know that it's not. Mm-hmm. That depends mm-hmm. on who's doing the science, who's doing the research, um, who's paying for the research, you know, all, all that. And, um, and it's, there's a lot of bias in research, and um, it really influences the outcome. As much as they try to take the bias out, they still come in there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I, I also chuckle, you know, when science, when you see, you know, 30% of the participants have a placebo effect, you know, it's like, right. how do we explain that? Right? Power of the mind. Power of the mind. Right. Power of the mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. I mean, that's why homeopathy yeah. works on dogs. That's why homeopathy works on kids. I mean, they don't have placebo effect, and these natural right. treatments are still effective. So, yeah. hello. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, our time so, just flew like crazy. Um, Dr. Steve, do you have any any kind of last minute things you'd love to share with us? Any, you know, I know that we've we've talked about all kinds of compelling messages, but anything you want to leave with the reader or the the listener of the show? I just want women in med- in who are practicing medicine to really read this book and to know the power that they hold. Um, just being as a woman practitioner, that's what I really want them to know. Mm-hmm. Because we have been um, lulled into thinking that what we know isn't important, and I really want them to know how important our knowledge is and our intuitive side is in practice. And I know some of us know it, but we I just want to elevate it even higher. Okay, mm-hmm. And it's not to say we have to overshadow young. It just has to be in balance with young. That's all. So I'm I'm very proud of what women have done throughout time and what women continue to do. Because we are phenomenal, you know, with what we know and what we do. And um, I'm just so proud to have been a woman practitioner um, this far in, in my life. And I feel like now it's my turn to give that back. And this is what I'm doing with this writing. And hopefully I can um, teach more of that wherever I go. I love it. And you're, you yeah. should be proud. Your book is really, it's it's a piece of art. I love it. So, Thank you. great job. Don't you love the cover? Isn't that just phenomenal? Well, yeah. The I mean, it's the, did you have yeah. someone paint this? No. Actually, the woman who um, helped me with the publishing found this 
uh, particular piece. And um, when she sent it to me, I, I was like, oh, my God, that's perfect. It couldn't be more perfect. <laughs> if someone had, did, had painted it for me. You know, all the chakra yeah. colors in there and the ohm, the ohm sound, uh, sign and the colors. I mean, just, yeah, I, mm-hmm. as if someone did. So some, someone did paint it for me. They just didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely. They they didn't know. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Dean, where can our listeners learn more about you and where can they get your book? Uh, you can get my book on Amazon.com, and um, that's the, probably the easiest way to get it. Um, or you can go to my website if you want to learn more about my, what I'm doing and where I might be speaking um, at uh, www.naturalmedworks.com. That's my website, and... You can um, read some of my blog that I write about on nutrition. Um, I guess I find out more about where I'm speaking uh, and giving other seminars. And I'm so appreciative to you, um, Lauren, to have me on the show. Um, it's, it's just such a joy to be able to speak to you. And, you know, I'm so happy you were able to read the book and uh, appreciate uh, the value in there. So my, my deepest thanks to you. Well, it's it's a mirror, likewise. <laughs> so thank yeah. you very much. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. And I look forward yeah. to seeing you next time I'm in Portland. We'll have to grab a cup of tea and catch Please. up. Please. Please do. Yeah. I'd love to see you. Awesome. Yeah, it would be wonderful. Well, thanks, Dr. Jean. You have a wonderful wonderful evening, and we'll we'll talk soon. Okay. All right. All right. Take care. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, you guys. That's the show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Check out this book, though. I, I, I try to read all, all the books of the guests on the show, but I really, really loved this, especially for any of you ladies listening. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor or not. If you're just a woman, just read this because it'll put a lot of things into perspective. And there's a lot of times I just was nodding my head. I'm like, yeah, totally. Way to really put it down on paper. So it's a great book. Um, next week's show, I will be interviewing uh, David DeSalvo. He is the author of What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite. Very, very interesting topic, so check that out. That's next Tuesday. Have a wonderful week, and we will talk to you soon. Take care. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. North Pole Hotline. Help! My in-laws are hosting Thanksgiving, and we're bringing the dressing. You mean stuffing? No, dressing. I need cute outfits for everyone. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's kicking off the holidays with stylish denim, velvet tops, the season's best dresses, and 40% off your entire purchase now through Tuesday. 40% off? We'll be stuffing our shopping bags full. And don't forget colorful sweaters and amazing outerwear, too. You can even buy online and pick up in store for free. Ooh, I love an all-you-can-wear buffet. Holiday your heart out at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1118 to 1120. Exclusions apply. See stores for details.